Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, folks. I'm Amy Wright. Thanks for listening to the Insights Podcast by Diddy TV. Our guest on the show today is Walter Parks, a wonderful musician originally from Jacksonville, Florida. In the 90s, Parks led the well-loved folk group The Nudes before serving 10 years as a sideman to the legendary folk blues artist Richie Havens. Walter also leads the blues outfit Swamp Cabbage, as well as recording and performing his own solo material. I really enjoyed getting to know him a bit, and I'm glad to be able to share our talk with you now. So take a listen, and I'll catch you again at the end. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. Good morning, Walter. Welcome to Diddy TV. Hey, Amy. Thank you very much for inviting me to share some music. This is going to be fun. It will be. And please say hi to your wife, Margot, who really helped out with providing us a bunch of assets. And um, looking forward to talking to you about the Georgia Holler music and the video that you produced for the Library of Congress. I watched it. It was an eye-opening video for me because I wasn't even aware of the history there and the music that evolved from it. And I would love to learn more about how you got interested in that style of music and that history, just in general, because there's yeah. there's way more to it than even just the music. But to start, let's go back and, and learn a little bit about you. You were born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida, right? Yeah, I, I grew up in northeast Florida, the far, far northeast corner. And I, I think of that, and a lot of people think of it as the Georgia part of Florida. It's... it's uh, it's very woodsy. It's uh, Floridians call it the real Florida, and it's um, it's a beautiful part of the state. Natural springs and manatees and palmetto forests, and it's I can smell it in my mind right now, even though I've not lived there in years. And there's such a great musical heritage in the South in general, but what a lot of people don't realize is, depending on where you are in the South, it's very very different. And we're gonna get to that. But this particular area was uh, close to, I guess, the Okefenokee Swamp where you would have grown up. That's just sort of north of there, I guess. But did you grow up playing music? Did you start really young? Yeah, I I did. I was a, Amy, I was a tall and lanky kid. And back, back in those days, uh, somehow uh, that was... It, it was not popular to be tall and tall and lanky nowadays you you know that gets associated with basketball and sports and everything so i th- i think i haven't thought about this until too much lately but i i think i went into music as a as a way of survival you know i was getting picked on for being a string bean and all of that sort of thing and i just i wanted to find my own little piece of real estate that was cool that i could that i could defend myself legitimately and of course, that was a time during the late '60s, early '70s, when the Woodstock era was was in full force. And you know, if you had a guitar, you were cool. You were you you had something to defend yourself with. And I, um, a, a lot of a lot of young people got into it. I, I hear a lot of young rock and rollers say, "I got into it for the for the ladies." You know, I, that wasn't me. I just didn't want to keep getting into fights all the time because I was skinny. <laughs> Were you classically trained, or did you pick it up and learn it on your own? That's a that's a a, a very very good question. My my first adventure was with music was on the viola, actually, and so I studied classical music. I could read when I was in fifth grade and sixth grade, and I I developed this sense of oneness and sort of almost. It was it was as if my practice room was a sanctuary where I could go and sort out all the problems of my world as I knew them then as a fifth grader and sixth grader by practicing classical music. And it became it became my my little personal church in a sense. And from there, I I had to pick up the electric guitar, like I said, as a matter of survival. The viola was just not hip enough during the during the Woodstock years and uh, but uh, yeah started on classical 
Well, and you played the bass, guitar, and I noticed that you play the banjo as well. So were those <laughs> yeah. just all instruments you picked up along the way, or? Well, I I I think I think I picked up the the bass guitar more as an adult. Uh, I was when I started studying jazz, when I started learning more about music, I was fascinated by fellow Floridian Jaco Pastorius, and so I learned the bass from that angle. But it was, and I and I always loved uh, my my music. My first musical love was. Early soul music, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and the bass guitar in those in in those songs was it, it drove the songs, and there was several famous bass players, James Jamerson, and that sort of thing, and I wanted to understand what what was really the 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 main sort of momentum of those songs, and it wasn't just the drummers, so I. I gravitated to the bass, and uh, so and and as far as the banjo goes, I picked up the, the banjo again more as an adult as a as a means of of making a living. I got a I'm, I was when I lived in Jacksonville, I was really kind of a a hustling sort of kid, and I would do a lot of things for if if I could make I had I told myself I wanted to make my living in music, and I I convinced the city of Jacksonville to let me form. Uh, a, a Dixieland band and walk around through the sports uh, arenas, the sport, all the, the baseball arena, the, the football stadium. And I would uh, put some, a band together of, of musicians who were portable and we would wear the straw hats and the garters. And I, I played a banjo. And so we would walk through the stands kind of stirring people up with Dixieland music. And in Jacksonville, Florida, unlike Memphis, unlike cities like New Orleans and Nashville, it, we didn't have any particular uh, grasp or magnetism towards Dixieland jazz. But when I walked through the stadium, people, it, it just, it just was, uh, it just would stir people up into a frenzy. So the banjo was my means of survival and, and making a living when I was a young adult. Now, at some point you studied music under Robert Conti. Was that something that was an, an important part of your musical learning experience? Yeah, Bob Conti was uh, a musician, a jazz musician from from Philadelphia, who had moved, like many Northerners, to the South, and he opened a music studio in my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida. Now, now Robert Conti was in the school of and was a colleague of Pat Martino. And George Benson, and who was from Pittsburgh, and these guys had a particular way of understanding jazz music and understanding the guitar. But Bob Conti was a complete anomaly in Northeast Florida. I mean, there was this this kind of aggressive guy from Philadelphia who basically claimed and could definitely put all of musical harmony on the back of a napkin and just make it simple for you and say, here's all you need to learn. And so we just, we thought this guy was like the Messiah or something coming to our hometown. And, and he was great. And it was, it was my introduction to understanding how the guitar worked in terms of harmony and so on. But Amy, this was nothing similar at all to the way guitar players grow up in, say, Nashville or Memphis with the soul stuff. I was growing up on jazz. As far as my 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 technical knowledge and my technical learning, so it was kind of kind of an interesting mix. I loved soul music that was coming out of Memphis when I was a kid and coming out of Detroit, but yet I was studying jazz from this northerner from Philadelphia. It was. Of course, jazz is pretty complicated, so I would say as a basis yeah. for playing anything, jazz is not the worst to uh, to start with. You're right. It's, it was a good background. You know, the, the, the challenge to jazz music, and I, it took me years to figure this out, there's a, there's a, there was at the time this sort of ingrained sort of arrogance in the way, in the way jazz musicians approached or looked at other music, they had this perspective that if you can play jazz, you can play anything. And it, it's just not true. It's just absolutely not true because the 
whereas it may be a very complicated way of understanding music, what's missing is the feel. And again, there's nothing like the feel of New Orleans music. There's nothing like the feel of the Memphis soul sound and the R&B. There's nothing like the feel of Detroit music. And there's nothing like the feel of Appalachian style music that we're going to get into and talk about uh, in a bit. So I'm looking forward to that. I, I was reading some of your short stories, which were really very interesting. Everything from um, Cuba yeah. to um, Butch Trucks. There was a story about right. Butch Trucks, which I thought was very amusing. Then one of the stories you talk about Dan- Daniel Lenoir and that. So you grew up playing jazz, but then then you talk about the fact that your musical style really took off when you started or when you discovered Daniel Lenoir and his playing. And I always thought of him more as a producer, uh, not as yeah. a as a player. So tell me in your own words, what about his, his style really inspired you? Well, it was it was Daniel Lenoir's relationship to the guitar. And I I don't know Daniel Lanois. I've worked with him a couple of times in some shows and opened for him and he's been nice enough to sit with me on those concerts and show me some things and talk to me about my music and so I I, I don't want to put forth that I'm chummy with him. I've seen him many times but regardless he has been a, a mentor to me over the years just in, in unexpected ways like you say. His his how he approaches the guitar, for instance, he I, I figured out that he he relates to the instrument almost as if it's an organ rather than a guitar. I mean, an organ like a like a Hammond B three. So he'll do this sort of a thing with it, and it's the way he grips the guitar to sort of simulate the vibrato of a Hammond B three organ. And, and it's a very bluesy way of playing at the end of the day. So if you're if you're holding the guitar like this, and I hope I'm not getting too technical, but I think a lot of guitar players probably, well, I know they watch your show, and they can relate to this. If you hold a guitar like this, which is the, the way we're taught when we're kids to learn, and, so, and you make a G chord, there's not you can't you can't move that it doesn't there's no there's no treble to it it just stays where it is but when you hold it like this and you can bend those notes while it's a very kind of a, again it's a bluesy almost a bb king sort of a vibe and it just it it's it's a relationship to the instrument that creates this sort of life, it, it sort of s- simulates a Leslie speaker in the Hammond B3 organ. It simulates a, a steel guitar, and it it gives it gives this 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 flow, this up and down flow. So it was it was how he played the guitar that influenced me, how he voiced the notes, and I just took it from there and I started doing my own thing with it. And that's very very important uh, is is finding your own style. You can. You can have mentors all you want, but you have to, you have to, you have to diverge from them after a while. Otherwise, what's the point? They're already doing what they do as good as anybody. When well, starting with the Dixieland band, and then you kind of move forward. You you moved to New York, I and and at some point you started. You were you were in an alternative folk duo called the Nudes, yeah. and was that really an outgrowth of everything you had learned or was that a departure because when, when you bring it back to Appalachia eventually we're back down yeah. south so uh, right. so how did the nudes fit into the the whole musical journey well Amy I'll, I'm, I'm just going to back up and well I, I'm going to answer your question the answer is survival once again <laughs> it's just like it's just like putting the Dixieland band together to walk around in the football stadiums to earn a buck I had I had started when I was a kid, I, I I couldn't stand acoustic guitars. They they were they just had cooties to me. They just didn't seem manly at all. But and and, and coming from Tennessee, where y'all are, it's, it, that probably is incomprehensible. You know, especially in and I know you're not in Nashville, but it's like, but in Nashville, these are and and in the bluegrass world, these are heralded instruments. But in my in my world, when I was a a, a young person, all I cared about were electric guitars. Because that's what was driving Al Green and Stevie Wonder and 
and the Cornelius Brothers and all those soul bands and that kind of thing. But so, but what when I finally moved to New York City, which I always wanted to do, I I came there with the goal of putting together a band. I even tried to bring my band from Florida to New York City, and I just realized. Amy, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe. I mean, you probably would. You're in the business. It's like how expensive and what a logistical challenge it is to keep a, a full band together in New York City. And I just it's I almost just, impossible. Me, it's <laughs> almost impossible. It's 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 so debilitating. You know, you just you just say to yourself, "All right, I can't do this anymore. I'm drained." You know, I'm drained physically just from the logistics of where do we park? Where do we find a place to rehearse that people aren't going to be yelling at us? And now now you now you got to find a place to rehearse and it's going to be super expensive per hour. And then everybody else in the band has to get paid. There's all this nonsense that you think about in New York City that we don't have to deal with if we live pretty much anywhere else in the country. So as an in, in the interest of survival, I just said, to hell with it. I have to just play acoustic. I have to go back and try to write some music and to create some music that I can manifest on the road just with an acoustic guitar. And at that point, I really kind of, I envisioned myself playing with a cellist. So I just wanted to simplify and I just needed to survive because when I moved from Jacksonville, Florida, New York, I have walked away from a very, very good um, society music career if you will i had five bands going at the same time in jacksonville i was making a lot of money and i gave all of that up to pursue my original music in new york and i had to keep working so i just i just stripped it down and that was one of the reasons we use the metaphor of the nudes it's just keeping it simple where were your favorite places to play when you were in new york during that time period oh during that time play period there was uh there were two places that I that I really liked. One was a, I I bet you it's still there. It's a cafe in the catacombs of a of a church in in Columbia University on the Upper West Side, and it was you know if you go to Europe and you go underneath the church, that's where they store the bones and everything. I think it was one of those kind of rooms, and it was called the Postscript Cafe. And it was just just exactly what you would expect. These these huge stone walls, and that you know, the there was leaking between the mortar and all of that, and it had a particular musty smell. But they had candles down there, and it uh, it was just all acoustic. It was wonderful. And then we also played often and and regularly filled a place called the Fez, F E Z, and it was up in uh, it was in. I think it was in Soho, or maybe no, it was near. Gosh, do you know where uh, the the? Um, well, it was near Astor Place in New York City. I don't know if you know where that is. There's a, um, a Shakespearean theater, and I forget the name of it. Uh, the Joe's Pub is. It, it was a. It's across the street from Joe's Pub in that area, near Broadway. And uh, it was it had this Moroccan vibe to it, and I love the aesthetics of uh, Northwestern Africa, and and we we would pack that place uh, three times a year. So so was New York magical then? Was it everything you thought it would be when you when you got there? For some reason, and I'm 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 really fortunate or happy about this. New York has always rewarded me, and I think New York rewards people who were who are industrious. If you come to New York and you you're willing to hustle and you have a kind of a work ethic and you just you just want to keep at it, you've got the energy to do it, it will reward you. And and it was magical because people would show up to gigs. Sometimes the the thing that's magical about it, Amy, is that if you're good and you're different, people will show up because they have everybody else in town with the exception of the people who are native New Yorkers. They've come from New York to be the best that they can be. They've come to New York to learn. They've come to New York to stretch themselves. So if there's a musical act, and in this case, mine was kind of stretching some boundaries, they wanted to check it out. And 
it was in New York that I learned two important things. One of my first gigs in New York was working, playing music in the subway, you know, in in Grand Central Station. Or, but you had to get, uh, you had to audition for that. I mean, people just do it in a guerrilla fashion, but the cops will chase you chase you away unless you have a particular sign. So I auditioned for it and got the audition with my former colleague Stephanie Winters on cello, and we called ourselves the Nudes. But Here's the thing in New York City, because you're the people who are passing by you on the street, they have such limited time. They're on their way to their to their work or they they might be on a coffee break or they might be going to the printing shop. And you have 10 to 15 seconds to get their attention. So that means every part of the songs that you're playing from top to bottom has to be compelling. If you if if we stop this tape, for instance, that that you and I are making, Amy, and said, is this compelling enough right here to hold my interest? That's what you learn to do in New York City when you're playing on the street. So that was that was just the most important lesson I learned in New York. And it just outside of that, it just has to be it has to be unique so that people are compelled to turn their money over and give you their attention because there's so many options. And it was, it was an exciting time. You know, I, I had my one uh, kind of magical New York moment when I was uh, spending a summer there when I was very young, but I happened to be buying socks from the same sock vendor as Keith Richards on the street. Oh, my gosh. He was in line behind me, so. <laughs> you know, that's real life right there. That's just, you know, Keith Richards has to go to the sock vendor. He just needed like socks, evidently, yeah, the same as yeah. I needed socks. So we were buying from the same <laughs> sock vendor. But one of the things that struck me, too, when I was looking at uh, everyone you've played with was that you, you did a stint playing with Richie Havens. And, and did that come from your sort of you know, desire to explore a different style of music, but what did you learn from that many years playing and touring with him? Well, Richie was a, he was a man of the people, and he he was, behind the scenes, he was pretty much exactly what you would expect him to be. He he cared what the average guy thought, and what what that did was it, it reminded me as a sideman what's what's most crucial it's it's not the the most important thing is relating to your audience on a personal level and richie richie was genuinely interested in just everyday people often we'd be needing to get to a gig and It'd be the morning after a show, and we'd have to drive to another town, and there was, Richie was nowhere to be found. And I'd have to, because I often worked as his road manager, I'd have to go looking for him, and he'd, I'd find him on some bridge just talking to people, you know. And um, so what I learned from Richie was also that when you take on a song, somebody else's composition, Amy, when you – when you decide that you're going to, in a sense, partner up with another composer, whether they know it or not, it could be a Dylan song, it could be a Daniel Anwar song, or, or a Sinead O'Connor song, whatever. Richie taught me that you have to do your own version of that. And you have to because that's how you honor a piece of music that you didn't compose. That's how you give it new life. And that's how it, that's how you give that song a chance to be heard by a totally new audience is if you do it your own way. And that's what I endeavor to do when I make a recording of a Sinead O'Connor. I, 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 I put one up on YouTube recently it was a version of happy together. I don't know if you saw that, but it's, it's the old song from the sixties and I'm, I'm on this kick right now. That's inspired by my my days with Richie Havens. I'm doing a series of music called songs. I'm sick of. And, and it's just songs that songs we've all heard gazillions of times. 
and it's they're great songs amy so the issue is not are they bad songs i'm sick of them because i've heard them so long so many times so my what i'm trying to do is to to develop a new relationship with these songs and 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 manifest them in my own unique way yeah i I read where you uh there was you were at a festival i guess you were in charge of one of the stages and and coming up with ideas of you know what to do on that stage and the idea was to take georgia on my mind and have multiple guitar players play the same song and have the audience hear it in lots of different ways and you you played it obviously, and you completely redid it in a in a new yeah. form. Yeah, thank you. That boy, you've you've dug deep into my bio there. I did, I didn't even know that was up available, but that is, you know, I I I want to I want to do that as a as a challenge and also as a learning tool for other musicians to just say, look, let's all take the same song on and try to do it our own way. And the 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 prob, the challenge is is that. You know, you can't, you, if you're going to do a song like Georgia on my mind, or I also do things like America the Beautiful or the Star Spangled Banner, for instance, yeah, the general public knows those songs so well. If you if you really destroy them, they're going to be able to tell. Now, it's, it's a lot different than playing something, you know, Giant Steps by John Coltrane or something like that. You know, it's, if something is, is so well known, you have to preserve a lot of the original song in your version, but then you also have to do it your own way. So it's a real challenge, and uh, I—that's a—that's another project I want to—I want to dig into at some point. So along the way, you were playing with Richie Havens, and then you started another band on the side. It was called Swamp Cabbage, yep. and it was more of a low country blues band. Did, was this just sort of furthering your interest in a lot of this sort of traditional, more traditional style of music? Well, Swamp Cabbage was sort of a, it, it was an, a, my journey to, to, my musical journey to see what I would have, how I would have turned out if I had continued to live in North Florida. If I, con- if I, if I had stayed all the way through my adult years, what kind of a person would I have been just in that area? Would I be as worldly as I think I am now? Would I speak French like I do now? Would I, what would be my political views? And so lyrically, I started to kind of satire all of that. And I, I did it tongue in cheek. And I, even my friends in North Florida find it humorous. It's not, it's not insulting. And I love, I love my North Florida roots and I go back there regularly. So it was, it was a journey into the, just uh, the regular guy that I could have been if I stayed there. And what I did is I, I, I allowed, well, I want to, I want to back up just a little bit. When I moved to New York city, I tried to be all European initially. I just, I tried to be just, I tried to put this British influence into my music and this sort of African kind of a, I was into bands like King Sonny Ade and Fela Kuti and music from Cameroon and all of that sort of thing. I was kind of trying to put that into my rock music. But no matter what I did, Amy, people would say, you sound so swampy. You sound like this kind of, you sort of play kind of like a little, I hear a lot of like a hillbilly in your music. And I'm like, after a certain point, I just gave up. And I said, all right, I'm from the swamp. I'm from the North Florida swamp. I'm just going to accept it. And at the end of the day, as artists, isn't that what we really want? Just to be unique. We're just to have, as I said earlier, our, our own little piece of real estate. You, you, because it's style. We're all really after style. And again, that's what I learned from Richie Haven. Style, connection. Those two things have to be there. They have to be, it's integral to success as an artist. And so when I just accepted that, that everybody else was finding in my playing, then I started writing in that style. 
and it had a lot of banjo picking in it. You know, it was just, uh, I don't know if you can hear. But instead of playing, you know, just the G chord, I would just. That kind of thing. So, and then when you play that on the electric guitar, it just starts sounding swampy. If you're going. You know, it has this kind of country but swampy thing. It's very different than bluegrass and that sort of thing. So it was an, it was an issue of first embracing what my roots were and then digging into it and just saying, hey, I'm going to write in this style. So I did four albums that way with Swamp Cabbage. We still tour. So not in the COVID, but. but uh, <laughs> I know we're all looking forward to getting back out there. Well, and that's kind of it. That's really a nice segue into uh, the um, Georgia Holler music, I think, yeah. because Georgia Holler music has a little bit of that swampy, swampy feel, obviously. But tell me how you got interested in it. And obviously, you produced this this video for the Library of Congress, which everyone should take a look and watch and listen to the music, because I personally wasn't aware of the history behind this. But if you could explain a little bit about that, that would be... Um, I think it helps set the tone for the music. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Um, well, when I was when I was younger, I used to camp out in the Okefenokee Swamp. And those were in the days when you didn't need a ranger's approval or anything like that. You didn't need permits and all. You just go out there, get a canoe and go out there. And I would, when I was in Boy Scouts or when I was camping on my own, I would wander through the palmetto bushes carefully because there's gators and you know, rattlesnakes everywhere. But growing up in North Florida, I got used to all that. I would find these railroad tracks just laying out in the, just woven amidst the palmettos and old, old boilers, metal boilers in just like, what the heck is this? It's, it's on these islands in the swamp. Why, why is all this stuff out there? And later on as an adult, when I, after I moved to New York city, again, like you said, bringing it all together in the story, I, when I started to lean back on my roots, I, I thought, you know, I remember all that time out in the Okefenokee. If there were, if there was all this evidence of people out in the swamp, I'll bet you there was some music made. I had never, just like you, I had never heard of music that had anything to do with the Okefenokee swamp. You hear about it in in Louisiana. You hear about swamp music and Cajun music and that kind of thing. Not in Southeast Georgia. Nobody thinks about that. And so I got curious when I started around the time when Richie Havens retired and and sub- subsequently passed away, I thought, well, boy, what do I do now? I've been playing with him all over the world for 10 years. So, Amy, I had my eggs all in, my, in, in that one basket. And, you know... As a guitar player, you you find a great gig like playing with Richie Havens. You hold on to it, and you always say yes to those gigs. So I did that for ten years. But in the music business, when when a when a gig or an assignment is finished, it's just you know, there's no retirement. And there's you know, there's no going away party. It's just okay, it's over now. You got to figure out what's next. But but Richie had retired. He had gone and passed away so i thought to myself what do i do now and so that's why i started digging into the the music of the okefenokee swamp and on a hunch i just went to the library of congress archives and sure enough there had been a a, a recording made in 1944 by a guy from the north on borrowed equipment from the library of congress and he went out can you imagine in 1945 there's no there's no electricity out there in the swamp how do you how do you deal with that? They had battery powered recording units. I mean, just think about that. We we think of it uh, it's a big deal to go out in the swamp with a cell phone that'll last for you know 5 hours on a charge. These guys had to take charge their batteries in Folkestone, Georgia, go an hour into the swamp, record what they could for 30 minutes and then go back to Folkestone, Georgia. And it was just arduous, but they preserved forever the music of the homesteaders who were living out in the Okefenokee. And what I did is I said, I, I listened to this and I thought, this is just, this is gold. I mean, this is, I don't know if anybody's really ever heard this in the modern times. 
And so I started arranging it for my for the guitar and my voice. And again, to try to give it new life as inspired by some of the greats that I've worked with, uh, Richie Havens and so on. So that was why I went looking for that music, why I found it, and what I'm doing with it now. Tell us a little bit about the style of music and why they call it Georgia Holler music. That's that's a great question. There were there were three types of music that I that I found that they were making out there. There were there was religious music, as you might expect. It, the the church was a big part of people's lives. Now, when I say people's lives, I want to be clear. There, in the old days, of course, there were Native Americans who lived out there. We don't really know. This this is not a study of the music made by Native Americans. Sadly, there was no recordings of it. This is the music made by people of European descent who homesteaded out there between 1850, say, and mid-1900s. So there was a strong tie with the church in, in their way of living. So they, they did what they call sacred harp music and uh, shape note singing. They would all get in, they would, the family would face each other, and everybody would sing one of four parts. So, and there was also Appalachian style music, like kind of you and I hear all the time, this fiddle music, banjo music, what we now know as the precursors to country music, uh, reels and jigs and that kind of thing. And then there were also hollers and hollers were kind of yodel in nature, but they were not exactly yodels. Like we think of in terms of, well, the old timers didn't consider this music at all, Amy, that the hollers were practical communication, much like the way we use cell phones. If they had been out in the woods for two or three days and they, they had been gone for two days and then they came back on their house before they approached their house, they had to have a holler. And because it was just dangerous to approach the house without any kind of advance warning. So if Margot could put on a little reverb just for a second, I'm going to show you what the holler kind of sounds like. It has a yodel sort of character to it. long carry to it and I asked her to put on the reverb and I also sang into the strings of my guitar because I've learned that that kind of simulates the way the the voice carries in the southeastern Georgia pine trees in the swamps out there if you go out there the the, the branches are only on the tops of the trees they natural the lower branches just naturally fall off so it's like being in a forest of toothpicks and these, these trees, in very small ways, when you're singing, they're just vibrating like that. It, 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 it's, it, it's, the, it's the weirdest, eeriest effect that I've probably ever heard of the human voice. But it kind of carries like that. And when I listened to this tape made in 1945, it had that really long sound to it, this long echo. I'm like, they didn't have sound effects back then. What the heck is this? So I went out there and tried it for myself, and it and it, it it sounds like you're in a cathedral in France or something. It's just mystical. So well, and a lot of people don't really realize there's there are islands in the swamp, and people were right. living on these individual islands, and obviously, yes. there had to be a way to communicate between right. between islands and people because there was some distance there, and you couldn't always get in a boat and get to no, the person, the, other person, exactly. Exactly. I'm so glad you clarified that because sometimes when I talk about people living in the swamp, they're like, how do you live in just the water and the alligators? And yes, they're little islands. They had homesteads. They, they raised livestock and they planted crops and all of that stuff. But these haulers would carry from island to island over that open water, over those swamps. And it, it was it again. It's it's a magical effect. And uh, I for this video that you referred to earlier, I went out to the Okefenokee and demonstrated some of those hollers. And the 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 echo, the natural echo, is just phenomenal. So 
I, at, at one point, I, I wrote one of the, the old timers. He, when he was originally recorded in 1945 or something, he was like 17 years old. And I found out from one of the, the, the authors, I, I want to show you this book. There's a, a, a book called the Okie Finoki Album. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. I can. So this, this guy, Delma Presley, is a professor or was a professor at Georgia Southern University. I always mix that up. Georgia Southern University in Statesboro. And he told me, Walter, if you want to meet some of these old holler guys, they're still alive. They're 90-year-old men now. They're not 15 anymore. So I, I kind of chased them down and wrote them and told them what I was doing. And they wrote me back. And I was like, this is the oddest thing I've ever heard. Anybody going around to auditoriums all over the world and singing our Georgia hollers. They, they weren't discouraging, but they were just southern country folk. And this was, this was a holler, Amy, was a tool to them. It was not music. It was not beautiful. It was just necessary. And I found beauty in it. And here's one more thing I just want to state. I, I wrote all these hollers out in just musical notation. And when I, when I wrote them out and started playing them, if something was made on the, it's sung on the guitar, on the, on the, with the human voice. And if you play that on the guitar, it kind of sounds like a Nashville sort of Telecaster sort of thing. And, I, and the, the light went off. When all these little riffs that these guys were singing, these country folk, they, when, when I translated them to guitar, it sounded like Dwayne Allman's guitar or something. And then I thought, well, of course, it's Georgia folk music. Why wouldn't it have sept its way into what in Dwayne Allman? Why would that not be an integral part of Dwayne Allman's guitar playing and all the, the Telecaster players from Nashville and all that sort of thing? Um, it's it's a fascinating journey of how we how we acquire style. Can we hear one of the songs that from the sure, from the video? Sure. Yeah. So this is um this is based on a true folk tale of the Okefenokee. At one point, uh, there were before the white homesteaders came out, there was a sizable influx of of black folk coming to the Okefenokee in from the 1700s to the mid 1800s they were what and they were what they were doing is they were escaping from the rice plantations in southeast Georgia and they would go to the swamp to cross over the St. Mary's River and if they crossed over into Florida when it was Spanish you know they were free they had to convert to Catholicism and serve in the Spanish army, but that was a lot better than working on the, the rice plantations. So that's why they headed to the swamp, because it was e- relatively easy to cross the St. Mary's. So this is a song called Georgia Rice that I wrote for the Library of Congress uh, project and for a, a project called the Unlawful Assembly that I'm that hopefully we can chat about in a bit. But this is, uh, it starts with a holler, Amy. So I want you to picture this. It's sung from the perspective of the escaped slave, and he hears a white man out in the woods hollering, and he figures, if this guy's out in the woods hollering, he's not looking for me. So I'm going to take my chance and head towards him, and maybe he'll help me get across to St. Mary. So that's what this song is about.
heard you holler from a mile away. I thought he ain't a party to the search, and I prayed. Hound dog tracking back the road to peace. It like you drowned me smack into the yoke for noke. There's a damn good bounty when a slave break free. You're gonna catch hell if you shelter me. I'm out looking for the sacrifice. I ain't the weight in the water she'll set me free. So I take my chance with the poison snake. Cause the master won't hang the good money I can make Across the line of what a man can take Turn a man from a chattel and you clean him up nice Let him straight to battle from the Georgia rice Don't you wonder what I come up from under Beautiful, really beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, I love the line, don't you wonder what I come up from under, just because it really, uh, I think it encapsulates the the meaning of the song, which is, you, it's almost a tale of survival, and don't yeah. you wonder what I've gone through to get here. You're a hero of mine for noticing that. That's, that's You're really paying attention, and it's, it's this is, I, I love... T- chatting with you thank you it's it's i'm so glad that you that you that you brought that up because 
isn't it true in life we don't we don't think about the other person and how they got to where 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 they are how they survived to get to this moment and no matter who it is all of us have struggled and all of us have some journey but sadly it it doesn't really matter what matters is what the situation is that's right in front of us um and i kind of i think we would all appreciate each other on a deeper level if we stop to consider what we have come from up from under and it's it's i use that line as a metaphor for going into the water going underneath the water and avoiding the the searchers who are looking for the slave but it's also exactly what you said is what have i been through and thank you for for realizing that it as as a as a wordsmith or a, uh, a lyricist, that makes me very happy. Thank you. Well, it was very beautiful. And and before you played the 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 song, you mentioned was it the Georgia Assembly? The unlawful assembly. Unlawful assembly. Yes. Tell me a little and bit about that. I have a couple of years back, my father died, and I was told by some uh, family members that his. He, I was given a short list of some of his favorite songs that I never knew about. Because my father and I didn't really talk much about music. I thought he, he kind of just approached music as, he just couldn't relate to it really. But he had some favorite Christian songs. So I learned them for his memorial, for his funeral. And I was, I'm not much of a church guy myself. I mean, I'm, 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 made different spiritual pilgrimages and everything but i i'm not i'm not that's that's not my 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 main it's not my driving force in life is it, my, the church and my life is not built around the church put it that way but when i sang these songs in a church all of a sudden i felt the power of the spiritual music and i realized wait a minute i've been missing some things i've been telling myself that pursuits of the spirit and that whole study and that whole awareness was not that important. And then I realized maybe, maybe I need to back up and, and do some homework. And I looked into this music and I realized, Amy, that there is so much pain and joy all written into these tunes. It doesn't matter if it's amazing grace or how great thou art or down by the riverside. If it's spirituals or Christian hymns, it's all still there. The, the echoes of the original writers and the echoes of the suffering and or joy that was put into those songs are still there for us to just pick off the tree and enjoy. And so I, I went on this mission with a colleague uh, in, in New York uh, who's a fantastic drummer named Stephen Williams and we started taking a look at a lot of the American spiritual music uh, mostly made by black folks but I also brought in some of the northern European hymns and, and that sort of thing we started seeing how we could do a new approach so we started reimagining all these great spirituals down by the riverside amazing grace um Old Blind Barnabas, and we would do uh, Wait in the Water, you know, uh, work songs like Early in the Morning where these guys were recorded hitting a piece of rail, and these were prison workers, and we turned that into music uh, in a way, just like I've done with the Hollers, to try to give it new life and to also essentially lay bare that this music that we considered historical, Amy, is still relevant today because who amongst us does not want love in the modern day? Who amongst us does not want shelter, does not want joy? Who amongst us does not want to really get along with our fellow man or womankind, whatever is the expression? We still need to cooperate. We still need to get through our day the best we can, regardless of the time period. And that's why we've embarked on this. And, and we named it the Unlawful Assembly because it, 
that wording is a metaphor for forces that are kind of discouraged from going together, but we're looking for the harmony between those forces. And it doesn't matter if it's, we're, we're loosely alluding to black and white cultural relations, but we're also alluding to different art forms. One of my passions, for instance, is combining the acoustic with a modern electronics as hopefully I can demonstrate a little bit today. But so, and also ideologically, what a great divide we have in this country right now between the left and the right. But who amongst us would say that if we could work it out, we don't have to accept and understand each other's perspective, but if we, if we are able to cooperate, we're going to be stronger. And so that the spirit of that coming together that unlikely alliance between seemingly opposing ideologies, cultures, races, whatever, religions, instruments can come together. And we're just, we're trying to be an inspiration for that to happen. And that's why we've used the unlawful assembly as the, as the name of our group. When I always think of unlawful assemblies, I always think that when you bring together groups like that, that's when change occurs. It's a it's pretty powerful when you bring forces together that aren't supposed to be together. Um, and I would love to hear uh, what you were describing, which is a song that sort of incorporates that acoustic and the electronics. Well, I would love to demonstrate it. And this is one, uh, this is my solo. We've done it uh, for the Unlawful Assembly record that's going to be out soon. We've we've. We've performed it with a Hammond B3 organ player, a bass player, and a female vocalist, but I'm just going to do it solo guitar today. And I, I just want to tell you what I, I'm, I'm really thrilled about how I have kind of been able to create a... You remember, I'm sure you probably listened to The Who in the 70s or the music from the 70s, and it's like, you know, they have the arpeggiator sound before we won't get fooled again. I always love that. I love those early synthesizers of 77, and I always wanted to figure a way to combine that with the, with the guitar, especially the acoustic guitar, and I never could figure it out. And recently, I found a way to do it, and it's tricky, and I really have to listen. I have to be so calm, almost in a meditative state, almost a trance to be able to do this for you. So y'all, y'all, y'all wish me luck. Now, I've created a loop that's kind of a... A little ominous loop underneath this. And so it's all going to come together. And this is our version or my version of what we recorded for Down by the Riverside. Down by the riverside I'm gonna meet all my 
hear the entire Unlawful Assembly album, I have to say that I used to sing Down by the Riverside in Vacation Bible School, and if you're not from the South, then you may not know what that is, but... I, I do, I do and know yeah, what I love your version Bible. better, way better uh, than the one we used thank to sing. You. Well, well, that's the goal, and when I first thought of doing it, I almost had that reaction to, just like to some of those songs I was talking about earlier, it's kind of a song I'm sick of. I've heard it so many times. It's a great song. It's a beautiful song. You can't no, not like down yeah. by, you know, that you can't not like down by the riverside. But I just like, oh geez, if I have to sing this again, I just don't want to do it. And again, vacation Bible school, absolutely. And it's you hear it's it's just part of your life down south. And but you, but I don't know about you, but I. I was never, I never understood that song, for instance, as as a song that was originally a spiritual. That was that came originally from black folk, but when I was growing up in the South, we weren't taught that, and and I I'm I'm enjoying kind of. It sounds crazy in the modern time that people c- could be ignorant of anything because of the internet it's information is getting out and available to everybody but a lot of folks don't know that some of these songs were originally spirituals and and also i think a lot of times songs like amazing grace people don't know that you know even though that song is sung in black churches all the time it came from that song was written by a white slave trader and so, but yet, and in, in his redemptive moment, he was saying to, to God, he was like, what have I done with my life? This is, this is, this is terrible. I, I, I'm a wasted man. I'm a wretch. And yet, all of my, in all of my upbringing in the South, I never knew what, where that song came from. I never knew the pain and the redemptive aspect of it, because nobody wanted to teach us about the dark side of some of these beautiful songs. And it's not that I want us to dwell and bathe in the dark side. I want us to rejoice in the potential that these songs have to bring us together. And I also want to inspire people in their own art and in their own lives to do what we've done with these songs, is to do life your own way. Find your own style, just like we've tried to do with this music. So, Well, it's beautiful, and you're right. We take so much for granted uh, in our daily lives that we don't, we don't really take the time to know why we sing this or do that. Um, but you have done a beautiful job of bringing this together, and, th- and that was a 
um, reimagined version of Down by the Riverside, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. And, and Walter, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming by Diddy TV today. Um, it, it's fascinating. I could talk to you forever. In fact, I saw a picture of you with a bunch of guitars, and I thought, I think I'm going to have to talk to him again because I want to <laughs> know about all those guitars. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a guitar uh, a, a guitar visit because uh, they all have their own purpose and they all have their own story. And, and by the way, and let me tell you, this is this is Richie Havens' old guitar. I didn't mention that, but this is from 1967. It predates Woodstock. And uh, Amy, I, whenever whenever I whenever I travel, I travel with this. And I if if the name Richie Havens and Richie's legacy means anything to people. I let them play it after the show. And I think that's something Richie would have liked. So, um, given these things, these guitars and given this old music, new life is kind of what I'm all about. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was our pleasure. We look forward to the, to the album and for anyone who hasn't, please check out the library of Congress video. Walter, thank you so much. Amy, I look forward to chatting with, with you again, even if it's just uh, over a cup of coffee somewhere, and uh, maybe it'll be on the airwaves. But uh, see you later. See you Thank later. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Walter Parks. Don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.